morning, which is going to be from Judges chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. So if you are able, please stand with me as we read together. On that day, Deborah and Barak, some of Abinoam, sang, When the leaders lead in Israel, when the people volunteer, blessed be the Lord. Listen, kings, pay attention, princes, I will sing to the Lord. I will sing praise to the Lord God of Israel. Lord, when you, come, when you came from Seir, when you marched from the fields of Eden, the earth trembled, the skies poured rain, and the clouds poured water. The mountains melted before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. Let's pray. Dear Father, we humbly come before you and confess our need for the Savior. You are our deliverer. Thank you for your compassionate love and enduring patience towards your people. Instruct us through the truth and wisdom of your written word and by the guidance of your Holy Spirit in our hearts and through Pastor Jeff's teaching. We love you and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Kyle. Well, welcome. We're continuing our series, God is the Hero of this Story. We're going to be looking at Judges 4 and that beginning, that beginning praise or worship song at, at the beginning of chapter 5. Uh, so we'll be looking at that today. You can follow along if you have an outline in your bulletin. And so we meet a few new characters here. Now, we left off the story last week uh, with a judge named Ehud who killed Eglon. Remember how he did that, King Eglon. He put the sword in his belly and buried it deep in him all the way up to the hilt, right? And then we get one verse of a guy named Shamgar. Poor Shamgar. He gets one verse. At least he made it in the book, though. And then we are introduced in chapter 4 to some new characters. We're introduced to Deborah and Barak. Deborah is a judge. She's serving as the judge of Israel. Barak is her general or the general of Israel's armies. And we meet King Jabin, the Canaanite, and his general Sisera, who are the antagonists in the story. They are, they are oppressing Israel for two decades as, as a result of God's judgment on the nation. And then we're going to meet Jael. Oh, wait till you meet Jael. She's Heber's wife. Heber was a supposed ally of Sisera in Jabin, but his wife, Jael, subverts our expectations by doing something, making a total surprise move at the end of the story. So there are a couple, just a couple of observations I think we take out of this story today. First one is this, God's punishment for sin is corrective and redemptive. We see it happens again. What happens is the people repeat the same cycle. It's the same cycle of disobedience and disloyalty to Yahweh and worshiping other gods. God sells them into the hands of the Canaanites, and the Canaanites oppress them for two decades. Then what do they do? They cry out to the Lord, and the Lord in His grace delivers them from the punishment that He put on them, right? So we pick up chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. It says, The Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud had died. So the Lord sold them to King Jabin of Canaan, uh, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in uh, Harosheth of the nations. 
Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord because Jabin had 900 iron chariots. Now, just so you know, at this time, an iron chariot is the peak of technological uh, military warfare. This is like a getting bombed from drones from space, right? Okay, so the people are terrified. They're under the iron fist of Jabin and Sisera. And God must now bail them out again. But there's something inferred in the text. And if you read it very closely, you'll see it. And that is that there was another option. There had always been another option. And that is not to repeat the same cycle of failure and punishment and crying out and deliverance again. They didn't have to choose this. Israel chose this pattern. Now, let me be clear as Christians. Just because you choose the path of righteousness to live according to God's word, to live according to the self-control that the Holy Spirit brings into your life, does not mean that you're never going to face or be tempted to fail again. You're never going to face failure again. All of us have blind spots, don't we? I have them. You have them. We have blind spots in our character, and we need the conviction of the Holy Spirit to bring that to light when we fail. And we need the congregation. We need a, a group of people, a community, someone that we trust who can speak into our lives and say, hey, listen, this is an area where I think you have a blind spot. Let's work on this. But understand, when God brings punishment, it is for the sake, it is redemptive. It is to punish us for sin because he does punish sin, but it's also to carry us along, to bring us back to his plan where we live according to the principles of godliness in his word. John wrote this in his epistle. He says, I write this to you, dear children, so that you will not sin. Right? So, so that's what John wants. John wants believers to not live in this repeated pattern of failure. Then he says this, but if anyone does sin, now why does he put that clause in there? Because he knows us so well. He knows the human race so well. But if anyone should sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus, his Son, praise God, Paul wrote this, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, and what? Self-control, self-discipline. And self-discipline is preemptive. That is, it keeps us from wrecking our lives and then begging God to bail us out because we blew it again. Look at how Paul describes his own Christian life. And what he wants to say to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 9, he says this, don't you know that the runners in a stadium all race, but only one receives the prize. Now you run, that is run the Christian life in such a way as to win the prize. Well, how do Greek runners run? How do they do this? Everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything, at every level of their lives. That means to say they, they exercise self-control in terms of their diet, what they eat. They exercise self-control in terms of their sleeping and rest regimens and their exercise regimens. 
And so Paul is using this as an analogy of the Christian life to say this is what the Christian life requires. What does it require? To come at it with competitive energy, to live in such a way that we run to get the crown. He says they do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable one. So I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one just flailing, beating at the air. In other words, he keeps his eyes on the finish line. He's not just out for a random jog. He knows where the finish line is. He knows what it is, and he works with concerted effort, every part of his life, everything he does toward that end. And he says, no, instead, I I discipline my body and bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Paul has no intention to show up on judgment day, the day in which God exposes all of our secrets and lays them all bare on the day of judgment before Christ and be declared a hypocrite. He has no intention of that being true. Instead, he wants to say, I'm going to live under my own preaching. I preached it to you. I'm going to live under it. And what he wants to tell the Corinthians is, this is how you should live. You come at the Christian life knowing that your sins have been forgiven and that you've received grace, free grace, that you didn't have to earn, and that you come to the Christian life with competitive energy, working with all that you are to reach the heavenly prize. A little bit later, he says to the Corinthians in chapter 11, verse 31, he says, but if we had judged ourselves rightly, appropriately, we would not be judged. What's the context here? What's the context? Chapter 11, the context there is the Corinthians were guilty of dividing the church in lots of ways. Chapters 1 through 11 basically is Paul recounting for them the report that he had received about all the ways in which they are in division with one another. They are suing one one another in open court. They're dividing up the church under their favorite Christian celebrities and superstars. They are bringing reproach upon the church because they're tolerating wickedness and sin without church discipline in the body of Christ. And Paul says this, you have the gall. You have the gall to come into the congregation then after all of this and pretend to lift holy hands to God in communion and partake at his table? Nope. He says, this is why some of you are getting sick and this is why some of you are dying. That's a, that is a heavy chapter, man. It's heavy. And what is he telling us here? He's saying, listen, if instead of doing all that, if we had lived under self-judgment, if we had judged ourselves, if we had practiced self-discipline all along the way, then God wouldn't have to judge us. God wouldn't have to bring this discipline into our lives. And for sure, it's redemptive. For sure, it's designed to correct us and put us back on the right track. But they were moving in the wrong direction. Notice what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12. He says, endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, which all receive, then you're illegitimate children and you're not sons. No, 
Discipline, no discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. And later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Notice what the author is saying here. He's saying, God is a good parent. And what does a good father do? What does a good father do? He trains his children with discipline so that he works discipline into their character. When I was a kid, the thing that I hated doing the most, if I may confess it to you, as a kid, squirrely little kid, was anything that wasn't play. (laughs) So if it involved work at any level, and I mean mowing the grass, chopping the wood, getting rid of the possums and the squirrel, the dead squirrels that the dogs dragged up onto our lawn, I mean, if it involved any work at all, maybe that wasn't your work, but that was my work in Goose in Virginia, and I hated it. And I also hated schoolwork. My mom, I put grays in that poor woman's raven black hair because I hated going to school. I hated homework. I would come home and my brother would have p- piles of homework and she would say, where's your homework? And I'm like, the teacher didn't give us any. <laughs> you know, just lying through my teeth because I didn't want to work. I just wanted to play. And all my, my whole life, until my dad died when I was age 14, I worked. And when my dad died when I was age 14, my brother and my mother, they gave me chores, and I worked. And when I graduated and went off on my own, all of a sudden, these recessive genes of work came out of me. And I was like, wow, I have a good work ethic. And I realized in my adult life, I have a good work ethic. Who put that in me? My father, my parents. My brother, and listen, God is a good parent. He is a better parent than your parent ever could have been. And God knows what his children need, and he knows we need self-discipline. Self-discipline is self-judgment. It's just self-judgment. If we had judged ourselves, we would not be subject to God's judgment. Now, this is not to be confused with self-condemnation. Don't confuse it. There's a line there. Remember, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because the principle of the law of life in the Spirit, the life in the Spirit in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law, the principle of sin and death. So you've been set free. So we're not talking about condemnation, self-condemnation. You should never live under self-condemnation, but you should judge yourself. You should rightly judge yourself, and that's what self-discipline is. And so we need to avoid becoming like the Israelites in this story who were constantly repeating the same cycle of failure, punishment, crying out for help, deliverance, and then repeating it all over again. And if we follow their pattern, then we begin to really mischaracterize God as only being a God of love. Is God love? Yeah. Does God love you more than you can comprehend? You bet. I guarantee you, you cannot comprehend the height, depth, width, breadth, scope of his love for you. You can't. But understand, this God who is defined by love is also holy and righteous and is the just judge of our sin. And if you define him only in one way, without the other side of him, you have half a God. You have half a God. 
No, we choose to submit our thinking and our patterns to God's Word, which is inspired, Paul tells us, and useful to correct and admonish and instruct and train us in the ways of righteousness. The second thing I think we see in the story is that Barak exemplifies flawed but genuine faith. So we see that the people really didn't follow the the pattern of the generation under Joshua. They're very different. They keep falling back into failure. But then we see this judge, Barak. He's the general. And he sort of epitomizes a faith that is genuine but not perfect. Do you have perfect faith here today? I hope you, you don't think or you're not under the impression that you need perfect, flawless faith to impress God with. Nope, all you need is a mustard grain. All you need is a seed. Genuine faith is demonstrated by heartfelt obedience to God's Word, and Barak's faith faltered a bit at first. Let me show, show it to you in the story. Judges 4, 6 through 7, it says, She, that is Deborah, summoned Barak, son of Ibnoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, Hasn't the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, deploy the troops on Mount Tabor, and take with you 10,000 men from the Naphtalites and the Zebulonites, and then I will lure Sisera, commander of Jabin's army, his chariots and his infantry, at the Wadi Kishon to fight against you. And I will hand him over to you. So just so you know, the Wadi Kishon, is, it's a very narrow strait there. And so he's going to bottleneck his troops in, into that Wadi. And he says, I will hand him over to you. So the battle unfolds exactly as God had predicted. Now, we don't know exactly how Barak gets this message from Deborah. She has to remind him that he already has the message. She probably had already prophesied it to him. But notice that he, he trusts the Lord, but also recognizes his own need for help. Verse 8, Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I won't go. There you go. He says, and then she says, I will gladly go with you, Barak, but you will receive no honor on the road you are about to take because the Lord will deliver Sisera or sell Sisera to a woman. Now, notice that General Barak agrees to lead the armies into battle, but only with this caveat, Deborah, I need your help. I need you to go with me. And why did he think he needed Deborah's help? Because Deborah is a symbol of authority. She symbolizes authority. Deborah's reputation precedes her. The nation already trusts her to judge cases with her wisdom, the wisdom of God. And sometimes you just need a person's help who is a proven leader, a faithful mentor whose character is is known. So not only does her presence in the battle have the ability to galvanize the troops, showing a unified front with Israel's leadership, but Deborah's also signals God's presence is with them. She's a prophetess. God is with them. Now, commentators, I I was surprised to discover commentators and commentaries, scholars are very hard on Barak. Uh, Several scholars said, well, he clearly, this is a picture of failed faith. I disagree with that. I think this is a picture of flawed faith. I think this is a picture of a guy who says, yes, I will go, but I need a little help. I need Deborah to help me. 
In fact, Barak is mentioned in the Hall of Fame in Hebrews chapter 11, when the writer of Hebrews lists all these Old Testament saints who are the, it's the, it's the greatest hits. And when he mentions the judges, the few judges that he mentions, he mentions Samson, Jephthah, Deborah, and Barak. He makes it in Hebrews chapter 11. Barak is the kind of man who'd rather have Deborah's company and all that her company signals to the enemy. And he'd rather have her endorsement than to gain the glory for Sisera's death on the battlefield. He's not interested in the glory, and I think that's very admirable, actually. And so God is faithful to give them the victory. Now, notice how God works in the story. God goes before them. God goes before them. God is working in ways they cannot see. And that won't become apparent until they look back and see all that the Lord has done on their behalf. Now, there are several, several keys in the text that show this. Verse 9 says, the Lord will sell General Sisera to a woman. We find out who she is later. Verses 14 to 15, then Deborah said to Barak, go. This is the day, notice, the Lord has handed Sisera over to you. Hasn't the Lord gone before you? So Barak came down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. The Lord threw Sisera and all his charioteers and all of his army into a panic before Barak's assault. Sisera left his chariot and he fled on foot. Verse 23, the day God subdued King Jabin of Canaan before the Israelites, the power of the Israelites continued to increase. This is how God works. This is how he works. He goes before you. Notice God is the one who gets the credit for the victory. Whatever they do, God gets the credit. Because God is the one that is putting things together. He's the one that goes before us to work in unseen and mysterious ways. Often we cannot see until the drama has concluded. Has this ever happened to you? Would you look back to see all that the Lord has done in a season of your life and realized you had no idea God was working in so many ways around you, going before you? I've had this happen so many times in my life where I've had to look back and no matter how hard I was working, no matter what it is I was trying to accomplish or trying to do, God was working in ways I could not have imagined. God goes before you. God goes before you. So any fight that you're facing in the Christian life today, what is it? It might be a battle over image and desire. A desire to be conformed to the world's pattern of obsessing over stuff in your appearance. You might be battling that as a Christian right now. You might be battling coveting. Coveting is just another word for lust. It just means to desire something that God has said that's off limits. You can't have that. But in your flesh and in your mind, you think, I want that. And that's a battle that you face. You may be battling the devil. The devil may be assaulting you, stalking you with temptation to draw you back into your old pattern and your own life, your old ways. You may be struggling and having a battle with doubt. Many people avoid their doubts and just shove them under. Or they just give up to those doubts altogether. Or maybe you're battling a sense of failure. I think a lot of parents struggle with this. I think a lot of parents struggle with feeling like failures. They battle it every day. As I look back on my kids growing up, 
I can think of all kinds of things I could have done better. All kinds of ways in which I could have shepherded their, shepherded their hearts better. And sometimes I feel guilty for that. And sometimes I have to battle that in my mind and be reminded that I need to trust them to the Lord. That I need to entrust them to God. Whatever the battle is that you're facing today, understand that God is going before you and working around you to bring things together in ways that you could never imagine. And you won't see it often until you're looking through the rearview mirror. Also, God works through them. God doesn't just work for them. God doesn't just work around them. He doesn't just go before them. God works in and through them. Notice verse 16, it says, Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Heroset of the nations, and the whole army of Sisera fell by the sword. Not a single man was left. I guarantee you, after this battle, they were exhausted. Have you ever worked so hard at something or just been so engrossed in something you felt like God had called you to do and you just feel exhausted afterwards and you wonder, was that even worth doing? And these people, God has gone before them, but God is also working in and through them, through their efforts and through their fighting and through their strategy and through their tactics. And the rest of the story, General Sisera, he flees on foot and he runs to a village that he thinks is a friendly village. Historically, it has been. And Heber the Canaanite, or Kenite, is gone, but his wife, Jael, is there. And he knows them. They're a fa family friend. They're family friends. And so she is in her large tent, a big Bedouin tent, and she opens the flap to the tent and says, Sisera, come in. And you get the sense from the story in Judges chapter 4 that he's a little hesitant. Like, should I? She's like, come on. You can trust me. <laughs> yeah. The dude comes in. He's so, he's battered. He's wounded. He's exhausted. She lays him down on the bed and then covers his body, his feverish and exhausted body with a, a cover. And then she lulls him to sleep. Just sleep. Go to sleep. <laughs> and he does. Have you ever had one of those sleeps? where a train, if a train came through your house, it wouldn't wake you up. That's how exhausted he is. And as he's sleeping, she gets up and, and grabs a peg, a tent peg, and a hammer, puts the peg to his temple, and drives it into his skull, and pins him to the ground and kills him instantly. Now the battle is the Lord's, right? And that's the rest of the story. God is going before them, to cause confusion and chaos in the ranks of Sisera and their charioteers. And God is working through Barak and his infantry and his army. And he's also been working out this weird thing with Jael, who's been planning and concocting that if the battle turned to Israel, she would just become a turncoat and join their ranks Look at what Paul said to the Philippians, Philippians 2, 12. He says, therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but also even more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, Paul could have used two phrases there. He could have said, work for your salvation with fear and trembling, but he doesn't say that. 
He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Next verse. For it is God who is working in you, both to will and to work according to his good purpose. God is the one working in you, and what has he called you to do? To work out whatever he has worked in. And it takes effort. The Christian life, as we learned in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27, takes effort, competitive effort. And he says in verse 14, he says, Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life. What's the key? What's the key? Live like a Christian as you hold firm to the word of life in the midst of a perverted, ungodly generation. That's the key. Folks, the Christian life takes a lot of effort. The Christ- Christianity is absolutely opposed to earning. Dallas Willard, right? This is his famous quote. Philosopher Dallas Willard said, the Christian faith is absolutely opposed to earning, but it's not allergic to effort because it takes effort. It takes effort. And so we work out our salvation. We don't work for it, but we work it out. And God's punishment for Israel was temporary. It was corrective. It was redemptive, actually. The purpose of it was not merely to rescue them from constant calamity, but to rescue them from a pattern of repeated failure and Hail Mary prayers lobbed into the end zone, hoping that God would deliver them at the 11th hour. That's not the Christian faith. I hope you're not thinking that's what the Christian faith is. We thank God for his redeeming grace. But that same grace that saves us also trains us to say no to ungodly passions. Amen? All right. Barak is a shining example of someone who had a mustard grain of faith. It wasn't perfect. It was kind of shaky. But then he got it together, and he did what the Lord said, and he needed a little help, and so do you. So let me ask you the question. Whatever, whatever battle you're facing today, how would that battle change if you knew that the entire battle was already the Lord's? How would that battle change if you knew that the Lord was going ahead of you and working around you and doing things that you can't imagine. How would your battle change if you had some Christians who could come alongside of you and help you carry it? How would your battle change? Can we as a church, as leaders, help you find that community? I think we could. I think if you would avail yourself to it, we could help you find community and leadership and instruction and guidance. I'm going to have the worship team make their way back to the stage and I'm going to read you point three. Point three really is next week's message, but I wanted to sneak it in there just so we could end our time today with a little extended worship. I hope you're okay with that. Because here's the thing. When God brings the victory, right? When God brings the victory, what is their immediate instinct? To sing praise. Number three, singing praise is a natural and proper response. Listen, we have chapter four because they sang chapter 5. In the ancient world, they were illiterate. They couldn't read. They couldn't write. But that, they practiced a different kind of literacy. It's called oral literacy, in which the way they commemorated anything God was doing is they sang a song about it. And that's what you're going to find in chapter 5. Again, I'm going to read 
the first five verses. It says, on that day when God delivered the, the victory to them, Deborah and Barak, son of Ibanoam, saying, when the leaders led in Israel, when the people volunteer, bless the Lord. Listen, kings, pay attention, princes. I will sing to the Lord. I will sing his praise to the Lord, God of Israel. Lord, when you came from Seir, when you marched from the fields of Edom, the earth trembled, the skies poured rain, and the clouds poured water. The mountains melted before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. When God brings the victory, it is proper and natural to commemorate what he has done, to lift our voices in praise for what he's done. Now, you may be sitting here today thinking, the victory God has, I don't have it yet. Listen, you're a Christian, which means you don't proceed to get the victory. You proceed from a point of victory. You proceed because Jesus Christ has already won it. And so this morning, will you praise him in advance? Will you praise him for what he is going to do, for what he's already done? Will you stand? And let's sing a couple, three songs here. Sing it with all your heart. Sing your voice out in praises to the Lord. Thank you.